The supreme irony of my life is that I'm a very private individual. I'm a climber. I'm happiest when I'm far from the maddening crowd on the middle of the Juno ice field. Rocks, snow, ice all around me. I had to enter the public arena, and I did so unwillingly. But as I see it, that's an integral part of my job. Why even bother becoming a scientist and trying to improve our understanding of the nature and causes of climate change if you're unwilling to defend that understanding publicly? There's no point. That was climate scientist Dr. Ben Santer from the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Welcome to the Got Science podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today, we're talking about climate CSI. Dr. Ben Santer is with us to discuss climate fingerprints, the unique complex patterns of climate change produced by human influences. And our correspondent, Katie Love, is back with This Week in Science History. So stay tuned for that. 97% of climate scientists agree that human-caused climate change is happening. Of course, anyone is free to ignore this scientific consensus about global warming. It'll happen whether you believe it or not. But some folks don't just deny the science, they attack the scientists. People with vested interests in denying the threat of human-caused climate change have relied on some pretty underhanded tactics in an effort to discredit climate science, like hacking emails, harassing scientists where they live and work, and spreading reputation-damaging rumors online and in print. Scientists who are committed to communicating science to the public and helping us understand the risks we're facing often become targets of the most vicious and false smear campaigns, simply for speaking the truth. I'm sorry to say that this has been the case for our guest today. Dr. Ben Santer is a climate researcher at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, a former researcher at the University of East Anglia's Climatic Research Unit and a MacArthur Fellowship winner. His seminal work on identifying the fingerprints of climate change was crucial in ruling out any other natural causes behind our changing climate. For this work, and for communicating it so successfully, he was the target of a long campaign to discredit him personally and professionally. Happily, he's come through it and was gracious enough to speak to us about why we should never be scared to stand up when science is being sidelined. Our correspondent, Deborah Moore, chatted with Dr. Santer about his career, his advice for young scientists facing blowback for their work, and the 12 words that changed his life. Deborah, take it away. Thank you, Colleen. And Dr. Santer, thank you for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. So here we are in the aftermath of three intense hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, Maria. You are a climate scientist. What can you tell us about these events? After Katrina, we looked at the issue of whether human activities, human-caused fossil fuel burning, was affecting some of the conditions that influence hurricanes. We started off looking at ocean surface temperatures in key hurricane breeding grounds of the Atlantic and Pacific, and were able to show that human-caused burning of fossil fuels was warming these key breeding grounds for hurricanes. That's concerning. After that, we looked at not just the surface of the ocean, but the heat content of the ocean, the uppermost 
several hundred meters and were able to show that ocean heat content was also increasing. Again, concerning if you're thinking about the conditions that influence hurricanes. And after that, we looked at the amount of moisture in the atmosphere. We looked at these beautiful satellite measurements of the total amount of moisture in the atmosphere. And those satellite records too showed a clear human imprint of warming and moistening of the atmosphere. Again, that's one of the large scale conditions that can influence hurricanes. So we're rolling the dice. We're changing some of these uh, climatic conditions that influence the development, the intensity of hurricanes, and we're changing them in a way that would tend to make hurricanes more intense and have more water vapor, more rainfall. We're also in warming the oceans, raising sea level, which means the baseline for these extreme events is higher. All of this is deeply, deeply concerning to me. If you look at the devastation, the destruction caused by Harvey, Irma, and Maria, mm. this is not just some theoretical thing we're talking about. This is not just some simulation. We're witnessing these events that are harming millions of people in the real world today. And our best understanding is that Harvey, Irma, and Maria are a glimpse, a window into the future. And these kind of events are what we're looking at, what we uh, can reasonably expect to experience in coming decades. So you were one of the climate scientists who coined the term climate fingerprint. What is that? Can you describe that for the lay person? So let's go back a little bit. About 30 years ago, climate scientists were mostly looking at one number, the average temperature of the planet land surface and oceans. And they were trying to glean information about the causes of climate change by looking at that one number and seeing how it changed over time. The difficulty was the global mean, the average temperature can change for different reasons. There are many things happening at the same time in the climate system. Humans are burning fossil fuels and increasing levels of heat trapping greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The sun is changing its energy output over time. There are volcanic eruptions and sometimes big eruptions can cool the planet down for a couple of years at a time or even longer. There are internal oscillations in the climate system, things like El Ninos and La Niñas. There are things that we do that don't warm the planet like particulate pollution, sulfate aerosols that we produce from combustion processes. Those can even cool locally where you have a lot of these particulates in the atmosphere. So all of this stuff is happening at the same time. And if you only look at the global mean, you don't have a good way of separating these things. The insight in fingerprinting, which really came from the work of Klaus Hasselmann in Germany in the late 1970s and from Jerry North at Texas A&M, was that we need to look beyond that one global mean number. Look at patterns. Look at geographical patterns of climate change. Look at slices through the ocean and through the atmosphere. And when you probe beyond that one global mean number and look at patterns, you get more discriminatory power. You can say, oh, this pattern doesn't look like the sun, or this pattern of climate change is not something that could be caused by volcanoes. 
And that was key, that insight, because it turns out that the sun, volcanoes, human-caused changes in greenhouse gases, particulate pollution, each of those things has some unique characteristic fingerprints, some whorls and ridges, just Mm -hmm. like our fingerprints. But those become more obvious when you look at patterns and not just at that one number. So that was the notion. And the theory for how to do that was already available. How to search for coherent patterns in noisy data. This is what electrical engineers do. Mm -hmm. And there was tried and tested theoretical underpinning for how to do that and how to apply those insights from electrical engineering in the climate arena and search for emerging human-caused warming signal embedded in noisy data. What insight did you bring to this? You talked about other researchers and that the statistics were known. What have you found in your work? Well, I started this work in 1987. I had just gotten my PhD at the Climatic Research Unit at the University of East Anglia. I went to do a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute for Meteorology in Hamburg, and I had no clue what I was supposed to be doing there. And eventually, Klaus Hasselmann, the director of the institute, said, you should work on fingerprinting. Try and see whether we can take these theoretical ideas of how to do it and actually do it in the real world. Search for a signal in real data. That's what I started doing then in the late 1980s. I was fascinated. It was a little different from the kind of work that I had done for my PhD thesis, but the the idea of trying to separate things, natural influences on climate, the sun, volcanoes, internal cycles from human influences, that was compelling. Imagine if you could actually do that in the real world, not just in a computer model, not just in the mathematics and the statistics, but you could do it in practice. So my job was to do it first with surface temperature, thermometer measurements of surface temperature from land surfaces around the globe, ocean measurements from ships of opportunity, more recently from satellites, then eventually to look beyond the surface at these slices through the atmosphere, right up into the stratosphere. So that's what I started doing, working on the fingerprinting, trying to figure out where would you look in this climatic haystack? If you wanted to look for the needle of human influence, would it be best to look at the surface? Would it be best to look high up in the atmosphere? Best to look at temperature, at moisture, at rainfall, at sea level? And the models could guide you. They could try and tell you in model world, where is that canary in the coal mine? Where is it most likely that you can identify some human signal? What do they tell us about where we should look? And? So it turned out that looking in the atmosphere at these slices from the surface right up into the stratosphere, that was a good place to start. And that's what we did. And so... This concept of climate fingerprints that you've explained and spent your career really looking at, they seem to be controversial. Well, it's not controversial scientifically. Mm. Uh, The scientific community has been doing this since 1979, I would argue, since Klaus Hasselmann's first paper on fingerprinting. And the first papers that did this work in earnest were published 22 years ago. 1995. And since then, one of the knocks on fingerprinting 
back then was you folks are only looking at temperature. And if there really is some human-caused climate change signal lurking in observations, prove it. Go do due diligence and show that this fingerprint is not just a house of cards that rests on one data set alone, surface temperature information. And that's exactly what the entire fingerprint community has done. We've looked beyond surface temperature at the atmosphere, at the oceans, at rainfall, at pressure patterns, at Arctic sea ice extent, at moisture content of the atmosphere, at moisture close to the surface. And all of these things have involved not looking at one average number, but looking at patterns. And all of these things are independently monitored in the real world. And they're measured by different groups, hundreds of groups around the world. And the red thread running through the fingerprint story is that natural causes alone don't explain the changes that we've seen in the temperature, in the moisture, in the cryosphere, in snow and, and ice. The best explanation of the changes we've actually observed in all of those things has to involve a large human effect on climate. So scientifically, that finding is rock solid. We've looked as carefully as we possibly could at uncertainties. Could it be the sun? Well, okay, we've looked at that. We don't ignore that possibility. Could all of the observed changes just be due to natural cycles, El Ninos, La Niña's Pacific Decadal Oscillation? We've looked at that. They don't fit the bill. Could all observed climate change be due to volcanoes? We've looked at that too. doesn't fit the bill. Could everything we've observed be due to some combination of natural factors, the sun, volcanoes, internal cycles? Well, we've looked at that too. Nothing, no explanation that purely involves natural causation can explain what we've actually observed. That is why it's so frustrating for me and for many of my colleagues too, having done this work now for 25, 30 years, to hear these ignorant statements that we know nothing about the relative causes of human and natural effects on climate. That is just fake news. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes, and please share us with your friends and colleagues. And stick around after the interview for our This Week in Science History segment with Katie Love. Now let's get back to our interview. And so I hear you say that the science is not controversial, and you've proven this, and your colleagues have proven this. And yet you've been a target of harassment and threats. Why do you think? What happened and what was your experience like? Well, 21 years ago, 22 years ago now, I was the convening lead author of Chapter 8 of the Second Assessment Report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. And that chapter came to the bottom line conclusion, quote, the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on global climate, unquote. Twelve words. We had spent one and a half years, dozens of scientists around the world, 
working on assessing as carefully and responsibly as we could the then available science that dealt with causation, that dealt with what we knew about the drivers of climate change, about observations of climate change, about models, and showed that when one looked at that evidence, most of it pointed in one direction. That was the first time, in my opinion, that the international scientific community had spoken with one voice and had said, there's a signal there. A lot of very powerful people did not like that finding and did not want to change their business as usual mode of operation. And the science was threatening that. Mm -hmm. Like it or not, the buck stopped here. I was the convening lead author. I was responsible for that chapter. So it was my job when bad things happened after publication of the report to defend the process by which we had reached that finding and to explain the underlying science. What is fingerprinting? How did we get from observations, simulations, understanding of the drivers of climate change to this, there's a human fingerprint in the climate system? Where's the beef? Where is the evidence? That was important to do 22 years ago, and that remains just as important to do in today's world, to bring people back to the science, to the evidence again and again and again, to make sure that when administration officials incorrectly say that we know nothing about the relative sizes of human and natural effects on climate, could be all the sun, could be internal cycles, that we speak forcefully and say this is not true. The scientific community does look at these issues. We've done that for decades now, and this is our best scientific understanding. We have some responsibility to hold folks in power accountable. They can't fall asleep at the wheel on this one. In part from these experiences, you've become such a strong voice for scientists and standing up for science and rebutting this kind of scientific misinformation. You've even appeared on you know, late night TV. Some scientists aren't comfortable speaking out in the public sphere. And so I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about how you have found ways to speak out that are consistent with your role as a scientist. The supreme irony of my life is that I'm a very private individual. I'm a climber. I'm happiest when I'm far from the maddening crowd on the middle of the Juneau ice field. Rock, snow, ice all around me. I had to enter the public arena, and I did so unwillingly. But as I see it, that's part of my job. That's an integral part of my job. Why even bother becoming a scientist and trying to improve our understanding of the nature and causes of climate change if you're unwilling to defend that understanding publicly when that understanding is incorrectly dismissed as a hoax or a conspiracy or a contrived phony mess. There's no point. So I continue to try and find creative ways to use my voice. And one lesson learned is that there's no one preferred path some people are good at social media and networking with others and disseminating information that needs to get out there. Some people are brilliant debaters. Some people are brilliant lecturers. Some people are best just advancing the science. Some people are organizers. Some people, like the people at UCS, 
take a more active role in pushing back against misrepresentation of scientific understanding. So find what you're good at and use your voice clearly and effectively to the best of your ability, but there's no one preferred way of doing that. Any other advice for scientists who may be thinking about or interested in standing up for science? Absolutely. Don't be afraid. I think one of the things we've witnessed in the past year in particular is this weaponization of fear. Using fear to coerce, to cow people, to make them timid. If you speak out, bad things could happen. You could lose your funding. You could get threatening emails. You could have some serious professional consequences. Fear is pervasive, and it's very sad to see that, particularly among younger scientists. So one lesson learned is don't be afraid. People are seeking to intimidate you because what you do really matters, because it's so critically important at this time to have a respectful, responsible discussion in the public arena about our understanding of the science and how climate change is changing the risks of extreme events that we really care about. Um, more intense hurricanes, flooding, heat waves. We need that discussion now. We can't kick the can down the road and defer. We can't say, you know, your daughter, my son, they need to figure it out. We failed. We can't do that. So don't be deterred by these powerful forces arrayed, allied against you. They are trying to coerce you because what you do is so critically important now, today. Keep on doing it to the best of your ability, be that through doing the science, advancing the research, social media, activism, lecturing, whatever it is you're good at, find it and keep doing it. That's a really important message, I think, for people to hear. And that's a long list of possibilities. What are you excited about right now in your own work? I'm excited about the fact that we've spoken truth to power. So in the last year, year and a half, some very powerful individuals like Senator Ted Cruz, like EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, have made specific testable claims about satellite temperature data and what those data tell us about the size, rate, and significance of global scale warming trends. Senator Cruz, on late night with Seth Meyers, famously said that satellite data show no significant warming over the last 17 years. EPA Administrator Mr. Pruitt said in his confirmation hearing in response to written questions for the record that satellite data show leveling off of warming over the past two decades. We've tested those claims. Those are testable claims. We've used all of the world's satellite data to look at them. We've showed that both claims were wrong and we published science showing that they were demonstrably wrong. I'm glad that we did that work. It feels like it diminishes the wiggle room. It becomes more difficult for Senator Cruz, for Mr. Pruitt, to repeat those incorrect claims when the science is out there, when reporters can say the next time that claim is repeated, but didn't these folks here look at that and didn't they show that that wasn't true? The thing I'm excited about scientifically 
is doing my science proactively rather than reactively. What do I mean by that? It's, it's part of your responsibility to address these incorrect claims, I think. That's reactive science. And it's not something that's a lot of fun, but it's critically important when the incorrect claims rise to the level of formal congressional testimony, in, in my opinion. The proactive stuff is the march of the seasons. So much of the fingerprinting work that we've talked about looks at annual changes or decadal changes in climate. Very little fingerprinting work has looked at shorter timescales, at changes over the seasonal cycle itself. And yet we know from the biological world, there are many signals there. Phenology, the timing of species, of flowering, we're seeing changes there, coherent, large-scale changes in bird migration. The biological world is responding at the seasonal level to changes in climate. So can we formally identify some human impact on the seasonal cycle itself? Are we changing winters and summers and can we say that we see a human fingerprint, say, in the size of the difference between wintertime and summer temperatures? That's what I've been working on with my colleagues for about the last couple of years, really. And it's been put on hold because of the other stuff, the reactive science. But now I'm back to doing proactive science, and I'm really excited about that. But at the same time, disturbed too, because we think we can identify some human fingerprint on the seasonal cycle. And just like with the hurricane work, this is not stuff you really want to be right about. Yeah. Well, in all of these experiences as a super scientist... If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Well, I would dispute the fact that I'm a super scientist. I still have to pick up the dog poop at home and take out the trash. I had the bad fortune or good fortune to be in a critical place at a critical time. The superpower that I would like, if it were available, would be the ability to get people to listen to you to take some of these ignorant voices, these forces of unreason, to the Juno ice field, to show them this is what glacial retreat looks like. And here are the brilliant women and men who work under these difficult conditions to understand climate change, what the face of climate change looks like. Hear, see, observe, bear witness, go back to Washington, carry with you the images from these places, from what you've seen, from the students and faculty you've met who give selflessly of their time, of their lives, to understand the physical world in which we live. My superpower would be to compel them to listen, to compel them to go to these places and witness and see with their own eyes. Boy, I'd love to have that power. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Dr. Santer, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for speaking out. Thank you for your optimism. Colleen, back to you. Thanks, Deborah. And now it's time for a short segment we call This Week in Science History. Our correspondent, Katie Love, steps into the time machine and goes back to 1895. This Week in Science History, we're looking at automobile patents specifically the first U.S. patent for a gasoline-powered automobile, which was granted to George Selden on November 5, 1895. What's interesting is that four years later, Selden sold his patent rights to a man looking to build electric-powered taxicabs. 
In fact, in the early 1900s, electric cars and gasoline cars were vying for dominance. And we all know how that turned out. But times, they are a-changing. In fact, a California legislator recently announced plans to introduce a bill that would ban in-state sales of all cars run on internal combustion engines after 2040. The idea isn't as far-fetched as it may seem. In fact, with the impacts of climate change becoming more and more apparent, banning the sale of internal combustion vehicles is becoming a popular policy choice around the world, with France, Britain, India, and China all making recent commitments to eliminate them at some point in the future. Might be hard to imagine a time when every car at your local dealership will be electric. But recent announcements by major manufacturers such as Ford, Volvo, and others about expanding electric vehicle lineups indicates the industry is betting on growth opportunities. And when the electricity powering those vehicles comes from clean, renewable sources such as wind and solar, it's a win-win scenario. We just need to make the transition. So while the internal combustion engine gained dominance more than a century ago, it's the policies we implement today that will drive the investments needed to reach a new tipping point. One where choosing to go electric is a no-brainer for whomever is shopping for a car. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to climate scientist, Dr. Ben Santer. Our correspondent is Deborah Moore. This Week in Science History is brought to you by Katie Love. Engineering and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Got Science, you can find us at gotsciencepodcast.org. Or even easier, you can pick us up on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please, share us far and wide. Thanks, and see you next time.